just a little insight. Um, Titus was uh, a guy. He was uh, one of one of Paul, who we've studied. We've read his writing, his uh, writings, and his story, and one of his good friends. Um, in, in fact, uh, he was one of the guys that Paul liked to take with him in some of his toughest uh, uh, churches and parts of the journey. Um, he he took Titus uh, with him when he left Antioch to uh, go to Jerusalem. And Titus was not a Jewish believer. He didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition. He, grew, he, was, he was a Gentile convert. He was a non-Jewish Christian. So faith to him was new. Not just religion, but faith was new as well as anything that it might become uh, religious. So he took him to, with him on these journeys. He worked with him at the Ephesian church at Ephesus. Uh, he, was on, he was with Paul on his third missionary journey. Remember, Jen talked about that a few weeks ago, that Paul took three journeys where he established and planted churches all around. And then um, and uh, after Paul, we, we just went through the book of Romans. Paul wrote a letter to Rome about wanting to be there. Well, Paul actually made it there. And because of persecution, who he was, he was arrested and was uh, imprisoned there in Rome. Uh, people... Uh, he was actually, that time it was just house arrest. Um, a lot of people suspect that's because, not full arrest, because he was a, a Roman citizen and they were afraid to try him. They were afraid to, you know, at that time, they, they did later. But So he was in house arrest. After he left, okay, um, Paul took this guy named Titus with him to the island of Crete, which is in the middle of, which is in the Mediterranean Sea. And he got there, and he saw the condition of the church there, and he left Titus there to straighten some stuff out, okay? And so, uh, after his Roman imprisonment, Paul wrote a letter to Titus to just encourage him and to uh, give him some insight to a handful of topics, and so that became the book of Titus. So this is a letter, and what's unique about it is, is most of the letters that Paul wrote uh, were letters to churches that they could read publicly and you could learn what church was supposed to be about because you could read it and people would learn, oh, okay, we're messing that up. Cool, real clear, awesome. Ooh, we're, we're, we're jacked up there, so we need, to, we need to fix that. And So all this stuff, but this is specifically to an individual guy who was a leader uh, for two main reasons. One, because Paul was recognized as an authority in the church it kind of commissioned this guy as someone that he said people should listen to. Say, okay, Titus is a guy that um, knows what he's doing. I commissioned him. Please listen to what he has to teach you because it's very important for the future of the church. Okay. Uh, the second thing is, is he writes this to an individual so that then instead of him just teaching it, he could challenge him in his own life. Hey, as a leader, as, a, as, a, as this one representing Christ, your life needs to look like this. So that then you can encourage others to, for their lives to look like that as well. And so the goal was then for others to be able to uh, take that on. And so this is what this letter is. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of instruction. It's a short letter. Um, but uh, it's, become, it's become scripture to us, inspired uh, by God uh, for us to hear. So we're going to get into that here in just a moment. If you guys are visiting with us, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Um, the bulletin has got a lot of the stuff that we do and what we're about. The vision's on the back of it. Um, it really exists for you to give you a little insight what's going on here. Uh, but hopefully you can't find out everything you need to know about a church by attending one Sunday morning 
And so we just encourage you to see what goes beyond that. Speaking of, a quick announcement. Next week, we will not be meeting here. We won't have regular worship service. Instead, next week is Serve Austin Sunday. So we have 12, 13, 14 projects across the city where we're just going to go. We'll, we'll go out as we do every fifth Sunday and um, serve with our nonprofit um, partners and just to be an impact. And I wanted to bring that up this morning because uh, I just want to remind us why we, why we do that. Is it's not just an opportunity to mix it up. It's not just an opportunity to go out and say, hey, you know, feel good about ourselves because we're doing something or whatever. But it's just a reminder that we, you know, I think we live in a culture and we live in a, in a city that the studies show the majority of our city looks at the church and says, you do not do what you say you're about. And they look at the church and, and um, many times with disdain and, and things like that. And I think this is a really good opportunity not only to go and do something Scripture calls us to do, but when we go do this and serve with others, we have the opportunity as a church to say, hey, my God cares about these things that you care about. And it gives us an opportunity to serve shoulder to shoulder, to make a, a difference, um, um, but also to change just the posture of the church to our city. And hopefully we can become good news in that. So I pray this is not a time you just decide, and it never is. I want to say that. We always have more people involved on these than we do on a regular Sunday anyways. But just remember, that's why we do this. It's one of the reasons we do that, to learn to be good news. And I, God just changes us when we do it. So please use the opportunity to be there. And I would also say this too. These are the best opportunities, in my opinion, if you want to invite someone to come be a part of what your church is about, I would rather you invite them to come serve together with us than just to come here on Sunday. I want to give you permission to just, you know, invite, hey, you got a grill, right? Why don't you come join us down at the grill out for the homeless or, you know, one of our other projects. I think, uh, you know, I think that's a good opportunity. So we will resend out a link to sign up. Please sign up. Let us know uh, where you're going to be involved. And don't forget, don't come here. If you do, you know, you can have a little prayer service or something. But uh, we won't be here. All right? Yeah? Am I bored you to death already? All right. No answer. Okay. Well, I was going to open with a rapture joke. But I figured for sure Lamar was going to do that earlier, and he didn't. And so I, have, I got nothing for you. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get into uh, this scripture. But I'm glad you're here, I think. Is, does anybody notice anyone else gone? Well, you don't know what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a crazy guy out there who predicted that the world was going to come to an end. Yes, well, the rapture would happen. The Christians would go to heaven, and we'd be in tribulation until the end of time, which was five months from now. I don't know where we got that number either. But uh, apparently it didn't happen. And so, surprise, everyone, you're here. Okay, so let's pray. Um, God, it would be great to, to stand before you, but we also believe and trust that uh, when we come in your name, that your spirit inhabits the praises of your people and that we do stand in your presence. And so we worship you in song, but we also worship you in, in looking into your word. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to take this very real living word and, and apply it to our lives. God, each one of us are different phases along in our journey and struggles and victories. And, and I just pray, God, that, that what we encounter is you today. I pray that that's our prayer. I pray that that's our hope. And so we ask you to lead us as we look into this letter. In Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up in a church that uh, 
was for your pretty traditional Southern Baptist church in a small town. But I was lucky, though, because my pastor was kind of a kind of a cool pastor. He's a really good guy. Really liked him. I would say he was really his his life matched what he taught. Um, uh, really loved him. Um, but I also remember as a young as a young child looking at uh, people in my church. And I remember seeing those who were pretty, you know, hyper spiritual and those that weren't and all this stuff. And I remember never really being able to identify a, a, a man specifically that I go, OK, I want to be like that guy. You know what I mean? Guys, you know what I mean? And so um, I remember growing up and, and I would see different people and they were living faith and it was it was living this different way. And you would see these people that seemed to be just so extremely sold out for faith. And I remember thinking that that was OK, that that's just them. And I that I could never be that guy or that person. I remember thinking that that the church in the world maybe was filled with with two kinds of believers, the kind that were kind of called to be really serious about their faith and make people feel uncomfortable and maybe be a little weird. And then the rest of us who believed in God and really had a lot of hope, but we were just going to be normal dudes, you know, just have a life and family and career and whatever. And then, you know, hope we make it or whatever. And um, never really saw a guy that really, you know, provoked me as a child and said, if I was a Christian, I could be that. That Christian, the closest one, well, Curtis Murray, he was a deacon in our church and he dipped. I thought that was kind of cool. I was thinking, <laughs> okay, maybe I could do that or something. I, I don't know. But the only other guy was my pastor. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be a pastor. So I can't identify with that guy, um, which, so here I am. Uh, I think that um, as I got to college, I began to get around some different people that weren't just small town USA or whatever and, and began to see some guys that I really began to respect who were committed believers, began to get that image of maybe what that could look like. But I still struggled thinking that I, I probably can never be that guy. You may relate with that. It's like there's these people and then there's the rest of us. And there's part of me that I probably had a misunderstanding of what that really was because I really didn't want to be that guy that much. Wasn't that appealing to me? But even if I wanted to be, I was pretty sure I couldn't be, that I wasn't uh, capable of being that guy. It's one of the reasons I like the book of Titus because the book of Titus is really saying this. Um, You're right, you can't really be that guy, but it's the work of Christ in you that makes you that person and that you really can be more than that guy, because that guy's image may be wrapped up in him, but your, your image can be really wrapped up in who Jesus wanted you to be. Everything that you wanted and hoped to be, uh, you can be. And in fact, if you go to your outline, there's a little sense at the beginning, I think, that kind of summarizes a lot of what I'm gaining personally as I study uh, uh, this scripture. And, and, and I think it's summarizing this point. Much of the letter of Titus encourages rather ordinary believers who occupy all walks of life to consider their lives in every facet as an expression of the will of God or the the gospel of Christ. Three blanks there. Much of the letter encourages rather ordinary believers. Uh, Titus was, was, did not grow up Jewish tradition, religion. We don't know fully what his life was like, but faith was new to him. So uh, any one of us, right after you came a believer, maybe with the first several years, it was probably you were like feeling like you were doggy paddling out there about to drown, you know? Probably, I probably still feel like that some, huh? And so here's this guy that Paul is just, you know, trying to pour into and just really give him this confidence and this instruction. And so much of the letter encouraged rather ordinary believers to occupy 
all walks of life to consider their lives in every facet expression of the will of God. And what he does is he changes the language from this is what I want this church collectively to be to very specifically, this is what I want you to be. And there's a reason for that. But this is what I want you um, to be. And so as we look in the outline there throughout Titus, there's only three chapters. It's a short book, chapter one, two, and three. Uh, A little kind of mega theme for each one that we'll see over the next few weeks. The first one is that Titus 1 basically says who who they need to be uh, for the kingdom. So something bigger, and we'll see it's bigger than any one individual church and one individual thing going on anywhere on this island. Okay, it was was who they needed to be for the kingdom. Titus 2, who they need, uh, what they need to do for the gospel for this message that we've been entrusted with, this thing that has happened. And then third, Titus 3, really kind of gets into then how they need to live. And, you know, this is kind of a typo. It says among the world. should be in the world or among the worldly. And really, it's those two things. Um, Because here's the situation with Crete. Crete was this island that one of its own... um, I call him a prophet, but I don't know the authority of that. But this is one of their own, one of the own Cretans was quoted by Paul as saying, this is to describe his own people. Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. And they're lazy gluttons. So he's describing his people as being just these massive consumers of everything. Not living outside of themselves, not doing anything, but... They're liars, they're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They had a reputation of being dishonest and, and sensual. We'll leave it at that. Sensual, okay? Cicero writes, says to the Cretans, this, this was a, a historical writing. It says, the moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. And this was widespread in their culture, okay? Giving this platform for false teachers who would give influence in the church. So this was a pretty morally corrupt world that they lived in. This, this island of Crete, this culture was about as consumeristic uh, as it could possibly be. So he's ultimately moving them towards how you live as Christians in this world that is morally corrupt, all about themselves, all about consuming everything you consume and striving after selfish gain and all that stuff. Okay, I know none of us can relate with a world like that. If there was just a nation that existed today that was kind of maybe struggled with some of those things, we might could identify a little more with the island of Crete, you know. But let's just pretend there was this place that some of us uh, lived in. We could learn a a, a lot from it. So he tells us how we then uh, live in this place that we might be hope. Okay, to those who don't yet understand, or we might be hope to those maybe who don't um, have hope, or maybe those who don't yet understand uh, their way of life. So we're going to look at the scripture three sessions, three sections of the scripture. The first section, Paul reintroduces, reintroduces himself and his purpose for living, why. He, he lives like he does. Why is he willing to stand up for the gospel, even if he's going to be in prison, all this stuff? Then it, then it goes into Paul reminding Titus of his purpose on Crete, on this island. 
And then Paul goes into literally rebuking those who fail to do good. And there's some real intentionality about what's going on here. So let's, let's start with this first one. Paul reintroduces himself and his purpose for living. Verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which, which God, who does not lie, standing in pretty good contrast to the reputation of this island, promised before the beginning of time, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, verse 3, and which now, at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. So he's reminding them of his relationship and that they stand for the same thing and they're on the same team and they're in the same boat together and they're rowing in this direction, okay? Grace and peace from God, the Father. I think he's reminding him of his grace, but also reminding him of that peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So imagine starting an email with that, you know, and delete whatever, um, Two things I want to point out in this scripture. First one, that first, Paul, a servant of God. Circle the word servant. That idea of servant. I think this is when we start talking about servant or slave in scripture, it's one of the things that kind of culturally freaks us out. We don't know what to really do with. But this word for servant here is a really, a very intentional uh, word. If you were to break it down, it, it really means, it's a descriptor that Paul uses through a lot of his writing. It's the word bond servant. Okay. And a bondservant is someone different than uh, a, a regular slave or whatever. Here, so here's what happens. If for some reason a master would look at his servant or a, 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 the head of household would look at a servant and release them, care enough about them, do whatever he had to do, pay his debt, whatever it may be, and release them into freedom, let them go. It was not uncommon for that person to recognize all they had with that family. To realize the trust and there was a relationship and there was something really special going on there. And it's not, it was not uncommon in that culture for that person who was then just given freedom like they've never had before to turn back around, out of not out of some kind of codependency, but out of an appreciation for who they are and what they've done for relationship to come back and to willingly submit themselves to that person. And it tells you a lot about that person that they would want to be under them and with them and would willingly submit themselves in their lives to the care of this leader or this person, this master or whatever uh, they may have been. And here's the deal. Only a freed slave could become a bondservant. Only a freed slave. It's the only way they could be labeled this thing. And so this was a term that was used with the highest dignity in the New Testament. When Paul said, I am a bondservant to God, he is recognizing the grace of God that has just so totally set him free and that he's, he's free in Christ and then willingly submits himself fully back to the work of God, that what God is doing. So he's reminding him of what he has done and what he has been through. Okay, so really two marks of Paul's life and his leadership in this little intro. The first uh, highlights his compulsion as a servant of God. This bondservant because of grace. And the second then is about his submission to the will of God. In in verse three, it says he's talking about uh, this thing that God has done. 
which now at this point scene, he's brought to light through the preaching and circle the word if you want to, entrusted to me by the command of God. See, Paul had everything you and I or everything we've ever heard or grew up to chase after or maybe in our selfishness or whatever, our nature we would might want. Position, authority, just a little bit of swagger, people following us, wanting to be like us, a lot of influence and plenty of money. Uh, all of the things that you would think a man would want, the respect of everyone, and God called him to something, and, and he had to leave all of that. To the point where all these people who once respected him now wanted to kill him. And he left all of that. And he submitted to what God was doing in his life. And he didn't look at it as a drag. He looked at it as an honor. As something he was entrusted with. Wow. That's a difference in attitude, is it not? That he submitted to it because he understood he was entrusted with it. There's a few things that describe a bondservant. The first one is understanding that a bondservant thinks in terms of stewardship rather than ownership. And I think if we were to put ourselves in this, in this, in this uh, line of thinking of how we live out our faith and how we do church and we, how we do with what God has done for us is to stop thinking about it like this is mine. Instead of thinking about it, this is God's and he is entrusting it to us. You under, he has entrusted the gospel to his church, to us, this good news. And we sit in a culture that does not consider the church good news. There's a problem there. And so he reminds us this. this. So this bond service, it's really a beautiful relationship. Bond service thinks in terms of stewardship rather than ownership. Does not expect to be served, but instead serves. It does not expect to be treated better than their master. They understand. I think about that in relationship to Christ. You know, when things go tough for me and I feel like, you know, well, I'm just supposed to be blessed, right? I'm a Christian now and things are not like that. And I want to give up and I blame God. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, God? You know, and I'm just thinking, man, they killed Jesus. He was constantly persecuted. He was constantly chased. He was constantly... Paul was in prison. All this. A bondservant does not expect to be treated better than their master. A bondservant finds delight in what his master is and what he has to offer. And he ultimately understands his purpose in this family. So Paul reintroduces himself, his purpose for living. This encompassed his entire life. This is his new life. Number two, second part, Paul reminds Titus of his purpose on Crete, right? And he's teaching this new way, this new way of life, that this huge significance on the way, the impact we should, leave, or we should live. Verse five, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That phrase, put in order, comes from a word that is the same word used for orthodontist. Or, or an orthopedic. Because it means to set straight. Like an, an orthodontist sets straight teeth. An orthopedic would set straight, you know, bone or joint or whatever, right? It's the same. That ortho word is a Greek word that, that is used here. And, and, but it comes with two prepositions that means very specifically that it is completely done. And it is thoroughly done. So Paul is telling him, there are some undone things. There are some things that are crooked that we have just got to get straight here. This is very important that we do, that we set in order what remains. All right? 
Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. It goes on to describe that a little bit more. Verse 9 picks up, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. It's the second time in two weeks we've run into that idea of the message we have been taught. The message we have been taught is more about loving God, loving neighbor, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, this scripture is most commonly used in the church to describe the qualifications for an elder. Because it is qualifications for an elder, okay? So it's usually used for that. We break it down and we... But I would propose that when we only look at it like that, what we end up doing is then taking the guys, that guy that most of us go, I don't know if I could ever be that or I want to be that. seems like a lot of responsibility. And we go, okay, if you want to be guy, now if you do these things, check the box and you all fit in. How's your kids? Okay, looks good. All right. Marriage, you like your wife? Okay, good, good. You fit this. All right, that this is a list of rules that I'm an elder, so I need to be able to do these things. Instead of looking that and saying, listen, maybe a Christ follower should just be about all these things. And those who do, it's evidence those people need to be leading the church. See the difference? And so as we look at this scripture, maybe let's look at it a little bit differently. Because I think our nature is to say, okay, there's those guys and there's the rest of us. Remember? This is not what Paul is teaching. He's teaching more so that there is this idea of what it means to be spiritually mature for all of us, all right? So first of all, a couple thoughts on that section. First, that it really outlines what it looks to be spiritually mature, all right? It is a list of qualifications for elders. This should be this person who is leading, which is a daunting list to me as a, as a pastor. It scares the fire out of me sometimes. Um, but we need to look at that. It's not the other guys. We need to look at this and be challenged by this, all of us, as followers of Christ. Outlines what it looks to be spiritually mature, and here's why. Because when we do this, we will become good news to others. Second point there, it gives us a picture of true moral authority. Here's what I mean by that. Today in the church, the, the pastor in the church does not hold the same place it used to in culture. Most of us already know that. Um, 40, 50, 60 years ago, church, little church, little town, steeple, middle of building, everything was there. No one scheduled anything on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night. If you did, you had to deal with, every, you know, the big dogs. The pastor was on the city council. He was on the school board. He spoke and people listened. People had issues. They came to the pastor. Okay. Doesn't happen anymore. For some people, as believers, but the church is no longer at the center of culture. I mean, study after study after study in America shows us that we are a post-Christian nation. I hate even saying that, but the numbers say less than one-third of Americans even claim to go to church or say they will. All right, so we don't hold the positional authority in our culture any longer. Okay, not sure how much we fully did before, but the truth is, is that most of the world, and you know these people look at the church, and they hear that, and their first response really might be, whatever. Because the rapture's on May 21st at 6 o'clock. Is that central or western? I know. That's good stuff. Okay, so... 
So why is this important? If we live in a culture when people are just looking with, with crossed arms, the people that I really, I, I, my heart goes out for are those that look at the church like this and go, I would like to just see you guys do what you say you're about for a little while. There's a lot of people. Does anybody know anybody like that? The number, you know, hypocrisy, judgment, those are the things that people look at the church and they go, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Well, I know more people who said, I, I don't want to believe in a God whose church is like this than just I don't want to believe in God, you know. Um, but it gives us a picture of true moral authority. Here's why. Look back at this verse, verse 9. Here's why this is so important. Because it says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught. Why? So that he can encourage others. This gives you the answer to, well, what do we have to do in order to be an encouragement to others and to be a light in, in our world, in our culture, on this island of Crete? How do we become good news that others, we might actually encourage and influence those out there who need the hope we have? Well, it says very clearly, if we pursue this and our lives begin to go on this track, okay, we will then be able to encourage. We will then be able to speak into it. We will then be able to do what we hope to do so that he can encourage others. So then it goes on. And the third part is interesting. Paul rebukes those who fail to do good. It's interesting, the culture of the church here. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So it's talking about the religious. It says there are many who are full of meaningless talk. Meaning they talk and talk and talk, but they don't walk. They don't do what they talk about. So there's a real problem in the church when the religious of us, we talk about what we're supposed to do, but we don't do what we're supposed to do. It's our deeds don't match our creed. All right? So that he's calling this out in this early church, saying that is a problem. When that defines us as believers, that's a problem. And we're going to lose our influence. We're going to lose our ability to be good news. Jesus taught when we lose that saltiness, it's hard to get it back. They must be silenced. Because they are disrupting the whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And it's for the sake of dishonest gain. That's interesting. Add. Verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Verse 13. Paul affirms it. He says, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Again, we're not talking about those who are lost with no hope, who are just living life for themselves. He's talking about those who claim to be religious, living for God, okay? And they're talking religion, but they're, they're, we're not willing to do anything with it. We're not willing to love God and love our neighbor, the greatest commands that all the laws of the prophet hang on. Okay, therefore, rebuke them, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, so that... It's a redemptive purpose. It's not to call them out and destroy them and make them feel bad and kick them out. It says this, so that they will be sound in the faith. So they will understand and gain this fullness of what they've been taught. And will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Verse 15, the pure, all things are pure. For those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciousness are corrupted. Verse 16, this is... We have to sit on this for a second. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There are a handful of things I hope we don't hear when we stand before God one day. One is, who are you? <laughs> right? 
One for me is I hope I, I hope I don't I hope I don't hear you just didn't love people enough. You know all that stuff you did, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of worship, a lot of you did you went to church a lot. You just didn't love anybody. You didn't do anything. I hope we don't hear that. And then obviously this last one, be nice not to hear you are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. That would be that would be ooh burn Jesus. So Paul does a couple of things here on this last deal. First, he calls out those who talk more than they walk. Guys, that is a problem. I think that's what people look at and they, and they go, Pfft. you talk it, I don't see it. I don't see, I don't see it in your life. I don't see it in your church. I don't see the power of the gospel in our city. And we sit back as believers and we should not be okay with that. That should bug us. It does me. Yeah, and I would, I would be the first to admit, sometimes I don't know what to do about it. So I think that's why the Bible just constantly says, just learn to do good. What does that mean? What does that look like? Go do that. Go be that. Go live that. If people are pushing it away and pushing it away and pushing it away because of you, something's off. How can we change the way those who need hope view the church? And I just think it has something to do with just living the way Jesus called us to live. Can we give each other permission to do that? That's why we do what we do. That's why we, I want to go out and serve next week. I think it'll change us some. And I think those that see it are going to go, oh, that's that church. Maybe I'll be a part of a church like that. guy told me the first service that he uh, was buying us a bunch of Kleenex. He put in the chairs for you guys, but I don't know, I'm a baby. You guys need it. So Paul calls out those who talk more than they walk. And then I think we're also reminded here that not all gain in the church is pure. We measure success really weird ways. There's a lot of times we have to be careful that we don't, um, we don't do what we do for dishonest gain. And uh, he calls that out in verse 11. So three personal takeaways as I studied this this week is just a reminder to me that if you like it, it, then good. If not, I don't care. It's for me. I'm just kidding. Um, One, what I was reminded is that they prioritized a new way over a new form. I mean, pastors all the time who are trying to think, how can we do church differently, a new way to do church so that we can, you know, whatever. Well, the answer is, is stop worrying so much about when, you know, how long's your offering and when do you do communion and how long, and start worrying about concentrating on calling your people and trying to be a church that lives a new way of life. And if we do that, I just really believe we become good news. And I think that's what the scripture is talking about. Um, Problem is, you can't check that box, you know? You can't just wake up one day and pretend to check, I'm living a new life box. Um, and so, but the good thing is, is that they knew if they did that, Paul knew if they did that, it would change everything. All right, so that's the good part about that. Second one is that they were, this is what really spoke to me, is that they were concerned about people they could easily ignore. Uh, Paul instantly said, find all these leaders and appoint them as elders in all the towns of Crete. My understanding at this time is about 100 towns throughout Crete. So my inclination as leaders, I got 100 good leaders. I'm keeping them here. You know what I'm saying? We're going to build this up. It's going to kick some booty. 
or whatever. And, but he doesn't. He says, no, this isn't about you and building your thing. It's about building my kingdom. So we're going to send them out. We're going to do that. We're going to constantly, as a church, come to that place. It's like, how do we do this and continuously be about the kingdom and not our kingdom? And uh, so this is their heart. It's a great reminder. The last one is that it was just literally unacceptable to not do good. It's funny. The culture, most, most times we get in the culture of criticizing those who do wrong, but we fall short of those who don't do good because it's just like, you know, well, you're not spiritually there yet or whatever it may be. But this was a culture of, no, this is, this is what we're supposed to be about. They recognize that throughout the scriptures, God says, I don't desire all this other stuff. I don't desire your worship or your sacrifice. I don't desire this stuff without the heart and the other stuff behind it. And so, and in fact, James says, if anyone knows the good that they ought to do and fails to do it, they sin. So it actually literally becomes sin to us. And many times it's unconfessed sin. And many times um, it's just unchecked. So here's, here's, here's the last thing and what hit me very, very personally. Um, I was thinking about Paul's life and his intro. And I was reminded of what he came from and what he gave up and then what he now is doing. And that he considered it an honor. And what I do is I think about all this stuff. Okay, well, I went out and we served with the foster families and we did this and this and this. And I had to give up a day of chilling and watching movies. Woe is me, but all for the kingdom, you know. And, and uh, I think so much about what I'm giving up. And, oh, and I make this serving thing about me, you know. And I even mourn, oh, it's like my faith is this thing on my ankle that's dragging me. And it's like, oh, but this is my cross to bear. I have to give up a, a leisurely afternoon or whatever. And I think sometimes we get caught in that. And what I'm reminded by this scripture and this, this thing is, is that at some point we got to get over that and we just got to come to the place where we just truly look at our faith and look at our lives as bond service to God because of what Christ has done. And we truly feel that we are entrusted with whatever it is we're supposed to be doing and we consider it an honor. And we just realize it's not about us. And we just realize that the rules have changed. And this is just a new life that we live together. And it will radically change us. It will re- radically change those who know us. And it will, it, will, it will change our communities and our cities. And we will become good news. Let's pray.